Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. One of the problems we come back to again and again on this podcast is the problem of how to govern social media platforms. Today's guest has written a book that he says takes an institutional political science approach to the problem of tech platform governance, arguing that the goals of effective governance capacity development and of global justice can come together, and that we can build worldwide direct democratic institutions to exercise public authority over the operations of the big platforms. So I'm Paul Gowder. I'm a professor of law at Northwestern University and the author of The Networked Leviathan for Democratic Platforms. This for democratic platforms piece of it is a kind of affirmative. This is almost a a kind of argument in favor of democratic platforms in the way that you're defining them. Exactly. I mean, I mean, that's something I really came to late in the writing process of this book. I mean, I thought that I had basically the political scientist looks at the platform economy and tries to figure out what's up with that book. But I realized that I just kept coming to this, know what I really have as a case for a kind of radical democracy. So this is a, about reimagining how social media can work, reimagining in particular how the big platforms can work on the globe in the future. Maybe that's a place to start just in terms of contextualization. When we're talking about platforms here, what are we talking about in the context of this book? I'm really talking about the kinds of things that you know politicians talk about under the terminology of big tech, quote unquote. And so what, what's special about these entities? And mostly this is social media. Right. It's not necessarily entirely social media. I think that, for example, things like some of the marketplaces, you know, your Amazon marketplaces, your Ebay's, so on and so forth, have some of the features of a platform. But fundamentally, it's social media. And the thing about these platforms, right, is, you know, we all know at this point that their major economic incentives revolve around network effects, right? We all know that. All the whole sort of the, the main idea of these platforms is they provide a way for people to interact one way or another with novel other people, that the value of that to users increases in the size of the platform, at least up to a point, and we can talk about that. And so we know that the incentives of the companies as a result are to scale up really fast and really large. We know that their incentives are to provide people with the capacity to do all kinds of novel stuff and interact with one another in all kinds of novel ways. And so for me, the thing that's distinctive about all that is it means that they create like really complex environments with really complex governance problems. And so my goal for this book has been to think seriously about platforms as these kind of governing entities of complex, fast-moving interaction environments. And I understand you're bringing a set of experiences to this effort 
that are not entirely academic. So you've had a role in consulting, in particular with Facebook, laying out what became its oversight board. Tell my listeners a little bit more about that trajectory for you. What is your scholarship on the one hand, and how have you engaged with industry? Absolutely. So, you know, I'm a law professor, but I'm also a political scientist. You know, my PhD is in political science from Stanford. And, you know, I've spent the last, at this point, I'm starting to lose count, a number of years studying, you know, through primarily this idea that we in the sort of political world call the rule of law this idea of what it might mean to control power and to build sort of constitutional institutions that control power. And so it turns out, you know, this is really one of those serendipitous things that I think, you know, really tends to get one on whole new sort of intellectual tracks is in 2018, Facebook was, you know, so that the, at the time, sadly, the team no longer exists. There was the civic integrity team that existed within Facebook. And its purpose was, I mean, to put it colloquially, to make sure 2016 didn't happen again. And it turns out that, you know, while that team had a sort of mission to protect democracy, they didn't really have anybody talking to them seriously about what does it mean to protect democracy? Like, how do we wrestle with the value trade-offs inherent in that? And so through sort of, I mean, you saw a series of coincidences, essentially, I ended up from the summer of 2018 serving as the kind of in-house democratic theorist on Facebook's civic integrity team. So I spent the summer there between academic terms, embedded in Menlo Park, like working full-time on that team. I then, you know, thereafter, you know, spent a number of months working part-time on that team. And then I was asked to help do some of the background research. And there was particularly some effort to learn about alternatives to quasi-judicial or judicial institutions across the world and how they worked. Some of the research underlying the creation of the oversight board, you know, the sort of Facebook or Meta Supreme Court. And so then I spent much of, I guess it would have been 2019, so like essentially the first half of 2019, putting together a lot of the comparative institutional research and sort of some recommendations about things like, you know, I mean, you can read my report, they released it, but, but about things like, you know, how do we balance the autonomy of members of the board with the kind of staff support necessary to have lots of cases, like that kind of stuff about the oversight board. And I want to come back to the oversight board and the way that model plays into your thinking more generally about democratic platforms. Uh, but I want to start with this ar- argument you make in the introduction. You sort of level set on the way you think about the leaders of this current crop of platform companies. The example you use is perhaps the one you're most familiar with in terms of working with the organization he created, Mark Zuckerberg. You say, Mark Zuckerberg might be a bad guy. He may be the face of a business model, which often goes by the name surveillance capitalism and which causes numerous individual and social harms, but he's not Hitler. 
you go on to say, this isn't an apology for Mark Zuckerberg. I don't really care what you think about him, but this book does assume that he doesn't want to be responsible for genocide, that he would be willing to spend a substantial, though perhaps not infinite, amount of Facebook's money to avoid that fate, if only he knew how to do so. So I just found that striking language, you know, firstly. And it occurred to me that this is one of the kind of, I guess, core arguments that we're having at the moment is about the motivations of these extremely powerful white male leaders of these social media platforms with their billions and often in their unassailable, you know, beyond reproach positions. I guess there's one read that says, yeah, you're probably right. Mark doesn't necessarily want blood on his hands. He doesn't want to play any role actively or even passively in things like what happened on January 6, 2021. And you hear it come out in statements from folks like Nick Clegg, you know, we're spending billions on trust and safety. We're investing, you know, more than ever before. We're the world leader. We have achieved a X percent, you know, reduction in hate speech on the platform, et cetera. I don't know. I found myself thinking you're right on one level, but also is that enough? Is all of that investment enough? And Secondarily, does Elon Musk challenge your very assumption here? I mean, the Elon Musk thing is a disaster. I mean, it, the Elon Musk thing was a disaster for this book. I mean, I'll tell you a little secret, which is that this was sent to the publisher a year late. A substantial part of the reason that this was sent to the publisher a year late is it turns out that it's really hard to write a book on academic timescales about something where, like, somebody of the character of tantrums that Elon Musk throws can upset the whole thing on a whim. So try to very aggressively, like, sort of shelter this book from Elon Musk as much as possible, just because I don't really know what to do with the guy. And I, I you know, I've never met Mark. I've I walked past him at a distance once or twice in Building 20. That's about it. But here's the thing. I, I'm a political scientist, like, fundamentally. And, you know, I, I come to it from a sort of you know, not terribly niche training where, you know, like there's this sort of tradition in political science called sort of new institutional economics training that's essentially a kind of I mean, institutional economics captures the idea in that phrase, you know, the idea that one of the functions of political institutions is to achieve a kind of interest alignment between leaders and people. And like thinking about that the the problem of these companies from that perspective, you know, I, I don't know how helpful it is to ask questions like, you know, how good a person is Mark Zuckerberg, or you know, could they spend more money doing the same things that they're already doing? Rather, I want to ask a different question, which is, what are the problems as to which? the interests of Mark Zuckerberg are aligned with the interests of the rest of us. Now, that's not everything, right? Like, I take it that you and I have an interest in not being subjected to intrusive surveillance for advertising purposes. And as to that interest, our interests are misaligned with Mark Zuckerberg's. He wants us to get more surveillance to the head. We'd like to get less. You know, that's not my problem. I mean, it's my problem as a person, but it's not my problem as a writer. 
Because, again, as a political scientist, what's more interesting is there are some kinds of problems where it's really clear that these companies with huge amounts of money and with, you know, particularly when we're talking about content moderation, with the formal capacity to look at everything that goes on their platforms and the capacity to squash anything that shows up on there instantly, right? Like this, like this sort of pools of like governing space that even the most technologically advanced totalitarianism and science fiction could only dream of. And yet, even though it's really bad for Mark Zuckerberg for there to be genocides facilitated through Facebook, it like it, it, it's going to cause you know it subjects him to huge amounts of regulatory risk. It subjects him to the risk of people fleeing the platform. It subjects him to the risk of advertisers fleeing the platform. Same with like you know AI generated like. Nazi advertising categories that ProPublica keeps coming up with, right? Like, this is something that's bad for Mark Zuckerberg in the sort of most brutish, like, bottom line pocket ways, as well as pocketbook ways, as well as in the case of the, the Myanmar genocide, like, being a basic human being who's not Hitler kind of ways. And so it's a real puzzle, right? Like, as a scholar who thinks about governing institutions. Like, for me, that's what I want to write about, because it's just mysterious why the stuff that nobody wants, including the people who run the platforms, still can't be gotten off the platforms. I'm going to come back to some of those disasters, because you focus in particular on Myanmar, also on January 6th. But you are essentially trying to connect a bunch of big ideas here, right? You've got Reference to your influences, Ostrom on polycentric governance, Hayek on the problem of knowledge, Jane Jacobs on urbanism, John Dewey in particular, it seems, on democratic experimentalism and the problems of the public. What are we trying to do here? You're trying to lash together a, a variety of ideas into something for the social media age. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to figure out the problem, right? In other words, we can come up with solutions until we understand the problems. And, you know, it turns out that we don't have centuries of study of social media because social media has barely existed. Like, I mean, maybe you could call it 20 years, right? Like, when was Friendster? You know, it's just about 20 years ago. Like, that's as long as it's existed. But what we do have is we have a whole lot of other knowledge that we've developed painfully over centuries of another context where it turns out you've got people who in many cases have interests aligned with the people they're governing trying to manage these like spaces where the whole point of the spaces that you're managing is to like create lots and lots of novelty to allow people to do stuff we call it like all of political science right so think about the city you know, how do we tell, this is, I'm going to sound sort of very Richard florida e here, and I'm okay with that. But what's the difference between a city that's successful and a city that's not, right? I mean, a city that's successful has like a strong economy. Why does it get, how does it get a strong economy? Well, it attracts businesses and people to be there. How does it attract businesses and people to be there? Well, it gives them the opportunity to do lots of stuff. Okay, you know, how do cities 
maintain a process of holding on to a strong economy over time? Well, they do so with network effects, right? Like good employers are going to draw workers, lots of available workers are going to draw workers, it's more valuable to employers to the extent workers and amenities are there, right? I mean, it's exactly the same thing, like the same underlying dynamic that drives platforms, drives the city, indeed drives any kind of governance. And so really what I'm trying to do, I'm not trying to lash together ideas at random, right? What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, okay, like here are these characteristic problems of governance that thwart people who like really want to do good at it, right? People who really want to have a city or a state that can have like horrible stuff not happen, but they struggle to keep the horrible stuff happening because of these characteristic problems. Here's what we've learned about those characteristic problems and the kind of things that we can do to solve them. Okay, can we apply those insights to the platform context? This is about how we organize governance, how we create incentive structures, systems. But you point to the problem of the diversity of contexts. I teach a class at NYU at Cornell Tech called Tech, Media, and Democracy. And I have students, of course, here in New York who come from all over the world. One of the things that they bring to the class is their own individual perspectives from the nations that they're from. And they quite often don't agree. I see it in them. And you talk about this, the idea that different cultures, different states, different conditions, economic, political, religious, every other form of lens we could put on it, such a myriad and, and diverse set of ways that these types of problems come forward. How do we ever square these with these big global platforms? I mean, this is really part of the heart of the problem, right? And it's the heart of the problem in two ways. So way number one, you know, I've got this whole chapter on what I call the problem of platform knowledge, right? And this is the sort of idea when you say big global platforms, like it's really hard. And this is something, again, that has been fleshed out a lot in the context of governan- governments, that, you know, for, we've got a sort of central governor, it's really hard for them to know and understand what's happening on what to them is the peripheries, right? And so when you think about Facebook and Google, Oh, you know, I guess Meta and Alphabet, we have to call them now, right? Like they're sitting there, you know, the overwhelming majority of their people are in Menlo Park and Mountain View, and they really don't have a lot of access to what's going on either factually, right? Like think about, you know, finding out that there's incitement for a genocide going on in Myanmar, but also like what I think of as interpretively, right? So there's, you know, all of these scandals are like every few years, it seems, somebody posts a picture of like, you know, women from an indigenous tribe, like doing a dance with bared breasts and it gets taken down as part of some nudity policy, where the sort of idea is that like people in Menlo Park are just not capable of effectively making decisions about whether something is pornography or a culturally significant dance about somebody in the south uh, an island in the south pacific it's just not like realistically possible so that's like part of the problem uh, so I'll say one more piece right because there's so many complexities in this i might one of 
the most striking things about like the sort of failures of platform governance in the last few years to me is the situation in the Philippines. And I, I mentioned this in the conclusion, I think, because it was just like mind-blowing to me when I was reading these stories. So, you know, Rodrigo Duterte like loves to use Facebook to menace his political opponents. You know, everybody from the companies to like human rights advocates, the press is like gnashing their teeth about this. And so there were these stories a couple years ago. It was like, you know, for the first time, Facebook is standing up a team in the Philippines to be on site to see what's going on. And it's like, dude, they've had a team in the Philippines for Yes, they have like like large parts of the content moderation armies of these companies are in the Philippines. It turns out in a post-colonial environment, a country where the wages are really low and everybody speaks English is a place where you're going to have lots of content moderators. But because of the internal organization of these companies, they don't think of content moderators as their employees. And so they like don't have access to the knowledge held by these people who are sitting in the countries for years before a crisis starts. And so it's like 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 this kind of problem. I like want to emphasize that because this reveals a few things, right? So one, you know, it reveals the scope of the problem. Like it's really hard for people in Menlo Park to understand what's happening in the Philippines. But two, it also reveals like the sort of possibility of solutions, right? Like what I'm talking about with this idea, maybe standing up a team in the Philippines would make a difference, but they already had a team in the Philippines. Essentially, it's like an accounting like spreadsheet somewhere, right? Like there's a sense in which, you know, take the content moderation team, bring them in house like have them reporting directly to an FTE in Menlo Park somewhere, and you've got like a huge amount of weight around the solution. So there's just, there's, there's a lot we can do thinking about institutions, thinking about structures, thinking about lines of communication, thinking about where knowledge is located that we haven't really explored yet. One of the things that you talk about is the sort of boundaries between the state and the platform. You entertain the idea of the state as platform, the platform as state, and I suppose everything in between. Where do you think we're headed on that balance? I mean, right now we've got the EU most significantly attempting to bring to heel uh, these tech platforms. In the US, we're continuing along with our laissez-faire approach. And then you've got, of course, other efforts around the world India, maybe a slightly more autocratic or authoritarian effort to bring Facebook and Twitter uh, to bear in the interests of the state. Where do you think we're headed on that intersection? Ultimately, there's two different issues here, right? So question number one, how statia platforms like really self-divides up into two questions, right? Question number one is how much like governing power over ordinary people do they have? And I mean, I don't really see that decreasing in the foreseeable future. Question number two, though, was how much capacity do they have to maybe compete with states, maybe resist state regulation? You know, the most salient examples, and we see a lot of salient examples of this all the time, 
right? The two sort of big ones, I think, are number one, all of the questions about state surveillance and the capacity for platforms or willingness of platforms to resist it, right? Like to what extent when some autocratic governor shows up and demands information about anonymous dissidents, is a company going to turn that over? Secondarily, in the sort of economic domain, right? I think about cases like the resistance of Facebook to the Australian news legislation, where the company essentially says, well, fine, then we're not going to carry news. You know, we're just not going to host links for news if you're going to charge us for it, right? What that reflects is a sort of fundamental balance of power between companies and states that we might think of as problematic, right? Like if there's a sense in which a company has become like such an essential service in a state that it can just say, actually, we don't want to follow this regulation. And so we're going to wield the capacity to deny significant services to your state and in doing so, change the negotiating position of the state. I mean, that's probably an issue. And I think that's why we see the most credible regulation coming from places like the EU. You know, the EU is a huge market. They've got a large population and a lot of wealth and international credibility. You know, probably the only credible regulator left standing at this point is the EU. You know, the United States is frankly too politically unstable and, you know, too interested in what we might call, how shall I put this gently, semi-autocratic efforts to bully the platforms for political censorship or political self-promotion purposes. On really both sides, arguably, although, as you can probably tell from the book, I think that the stuff that the right has been doing is a lot more problematic than the stuff that the sort of center-left has been doing. And so, you know, it, it, the really, in terms of the ability to, to yeah, to fight back against regulation or the ability for countries to credibly regulate the platforms. I don't think it's a coincidence that the EU has really been leading the way. And, you know, it seems to me that, you know, we're going to be looking to the EU for a long time to make sense of what the outer limits of permissible tech company conduct are. And I want to come back to, well, your conclusion and to some extent what you think liberal democracies can be doing to get their heads around platforms at the moment. But I want to talk to you specifically about this question of the role of platforms when it comes to cross-cultural or intracultural social conflict. I mean, this seems to be at the core of what a lot of folks are arguing about at the moment. It seems to be, of course, why folks like Nick Clegg care deeply you know, down to the decimal point, what the results of different research around the relationship between social media and things like political polarization might say. What do you think of as the role of platforms in managing cross-cultural, inter intercultural social conflict? I mean, you mentioned Facebook standing up a team in the Philippines. We've seen them stand up many of these teams I think they even call them special operation centers. They parachute in, you know, for instance, when things flare <laughs> up in Israel and Palestine or when there's a war someplace. I believe they set up a special operation center around Ukraine and had to take some different policy decisions there. 
the idea of Nick Clegg parachuting into these conflict zones and playing some role in how things work out seems a little bit odd to me. It does. And I, I don't think any of them want to be doing that either, right? Like, that's the thing. You know, nobody, I mean, these are the sort of worst, hardest questions in the world. Like, not only is, you know, some random tech company executive in Northern California or from Northern California not equipped to doing so or to dealing with them, nobody in their right mind wants to be dealing with them. <laughs> I mean, the these are intractable conflicts that involve military action in many cases. And so this is a lot of the reason that I go to democracy, and particularly like a really radical kind of dispersed democracy as at least part of the answer. Right. So so distinguish between two kinds of conflicts. So the, the Israel-Palestine thing, like there's no answer, like nobody has any right answer anybody for what to do in the Israel-Palestine thing. Like the Israel-Palestine thing is like the biggest morass in human history, right? (laughs) I mean, you know, God only knows, like nothing's going to improve anybody's interactions with that. It's just not possible. But thinking about more, less grievously intractable kinds of cross-cultural conflict, or even just like challenge, right? So I think it's a relatively easy example. You know, Thailand has this law against insulting the monarchy. Every so often, somebody in Thailand posts something nasty about the king, and then the Thai government goes to Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or whomever and says, hey, like, we want you to take down this thing that violates our law against insulting the monarchy. And this tends to generate, I mean, there's a lot of literature about this, like real questions in these companies, right? Like, do we follow American free speech norms, in which case we leave it up? Do we respect that country's law and take it down? How legitimate is the country's law? And more interesting, right? Like, there's a spectrum. So there are some laws that are more restrictive than American free speech law, but are clearly easily acceptable and companies should just enforce, right? You know, Germany has a law against glorifying the National Socialist Party. We know where Germany has an anti-Nazi law. Like, it's not controversial. There is actually one human rights organization, you know, Article 19 has come out against platforms enforcing that law. But like, I think Article 19 is crazy. Like, of course, Germany gets to enforce its no Nazis law. You know, on the other hand, end of the spectrum, right, it should be pretty clear if like Modi or somebody in India is saying, okay, go take down this Muslim propaganda, that the appropriate response of the company should be, hell no, you're just engaging in political and religious and to some extent ethnic repression, like not okay. But the, the sort of fuzzy middle, right, that, that's where I think there's a lot of good that can be done by the stuff that I talk about in the end of the book, by creating institutions that actually allow the diverse, ordinary people whose interests are at stake to have their say. And so why can't we ask a group of ordinary people who are predominantly but not exclusively from Thailand, who understand the context of the law, who understand the kind of speech that the government is being asked to take down, 
like, hey, you know, should we actually take down this speech that the government says is insulting the monarchy? This gets to the four aspect of the, uh, the, the title, what you are arguing for here, which is this decentralization, this participatory governance. You say it facilitates legibility. You lay out a, a design criterion for what you call a polycentric platform system. Describe what this thing is you have in mind. It sounds a bit like science fiction, but what, how would you characterize <laughs> it for the listener? Everything I say is, I say with some hesitation. I mean, there's a part of me when I was writing this book that really wanted to just leave out chapter six, which is the chapter where I actually sketch out what democratic institutions would look at entirely, right? Because, you know, I'm not like James Madison, right? Like any actually existing sort of institutions for governing like a complicated kind of spaces with lots and lots of different stakeholders aren't going to be designed by some professor sitting in an office, like thinking it up, right? They're going to be designed by negotiation among actual people with actual interests and actual power to enforce those interests and so forth. So that's my like big caveat for all of this. But I I included that chapter anyway, because I decided that ultimately imagining, and so it is science fictional in that sense, like imagining what sort of design could actually fulfill the criteria that I laid out is an important part of making all of the stuff about like polycentricity on all of the rest of that clear, right? So let me start with that, right? Like really what I envision is A, ordinary people, right? Like we're really talking about ordinary people for a few reasons. One, because ordinary people are not subject to the kind of problems with like internal conflicts of interest that companies are, right? Like ordinary people don't have a stake in the company's bottom line. And so they can represent the public interest in a way that companies can't, right? So number one, ordinary people. Number two, diverse ordinary people. That is, ordinary people from the global south, ordinary people from underrepresented groups in the north. And number three, having strong incentives to do two things. One, interact with one another. Why interact with one another? Well, because as I said, they're diverse, right? It turns out that what somebody from Thailand thinks about the law against insulting the monarchy and what somebody from France thinks about any law against insulting any monarchy might be different. But also, number two, actually put into real interaction with decision makers at companies, right? And so what does this do? If we take diverse ordinary people, have them talking to one another, and have them in interaction with decision makers at companies. Well, that does a few things, right? So number one, it means this thing that I call the problem of knowledge gets a lot simpler, right? In other words, if something awful is happening in Myanmar or the Philippines, if ordinary people in Myanmar and the Philippines have a realistic way of communicating with people who are high up in Facebook and Twitter and so on and so forth, 
then there's a significantly greater chance that those people can actually like make that information known to because remember like facebook and twitter i mean you know leaving aside twitter because god only knows what elon wants but like facebook and google and all the rest don't want genocide blood on their hands and you know we know we have lots of evidence from actual investigations of the myanmar genocide that just like facebook not having any clue what was going on and having no good way to find out was a big part of the problem so we can solve that we can actually i mean we can't solve it completely but we can like go a large part of the way to solving it but you know, one of the things that political scientists know is that merely telling people, hey, you've got like interest and you've got like a mouthpiece to communicate that doesn't necessarily achieve anything. Why doesn't it achieve anything? Well, for two reasons, right? Number one, they're both about incentives. Number one is the people need some actual incentive to put their knowledge to work. Number two is the people with authority actually need some incentive to listen. So, okay, now we have to change things a little bit. Now we've gone from ordinary people having a way to communicate with companies to ordinary people having some leverage over companies, right? Ordinary people actually having an enforced role in things like content moderation so that they have an incentive to do a good job and communicate what's going on because it's effective. And so that company leaders have an incentive to listen. And that also contributes, I claim, to solving the second big problem, which is this kind of internal conflict of interest problem, right? The fact that, you know, it may be the case that Mark Zuckerberg doesn't want January 6th to happen, but Mark Zuckerberg is also scared of Steve Bannon and scared of, like, the FCC talking about making regulations to take away Section 230 immunity and all the rest. And so, again, empowering ordinary people who don't give a fig about the company's bottom line also mitigates this problem by giving people who have what we can think of as like pure public interests as opposed to conflicted public and company interests, real leverage over outcomes in these difficult problems. So that's like the heart of the idea. Because ordinary people know things, and they have better incentive than companies. And so if we can build institutions, and I'm like radically agnostic about what those institutions ultimately look like, even though I sketch some out in this book. Like if we can build institutions that, that give them leverage over company outcomes, then they can communicate their information and help shield companies from these like conflicted incentives. And then maybe we can get some progress on some of these really huge problems on platform governance. I have many questions. I wish we had time to get through all of them. But, you know, there are other folks out there arguing also for decentralization, but their notion would be, why do we need a company or why do we need a, a, you know, a centralized power like what you see with Facebook, like what you see with Twitter? Why not a federated structure? Why not something that devolves? the thing entirely. Do you uh, see merit in, in that approach as well? Oh, absolutely. Right. So I think I do want to say that there are some advantages to centralization or at least quasi-centralization, right? There's at least two of them. 
One is simple economies of scale, right? Like it turns out that a lot of stuff, particularly when we think about things like content moderation, I mean, that's expensive. You know, things like the use of machine learning and content moderation never achieves, has never achieved the potential that people keep promising for it. But, you know, assuming that we can get a little bit closer over time, right, things like data sets to train that stuff on, just the sort of sheer number of people necessary to look at content, right? I mean, that's all stuff where there are substantial economies of scale. And, you know, it's not impossible to think about how that could fit in a federated framework, right? You might imagine that we could even see the sort of rise of, like, content moderation like middleware or content moderation like service providers that could make use of those economies of scale and provide them across a federated environment. I mean, I think that would be great. But the other thing, and the thing that really worries me, and it's also what worries me about the sort of like antitrust break-em-up strategy that you see so much in the U.S., is the problem of like different incentives across companies that have to meet mass markets and companies that don't. I mean, put more bluntly, right, like Facebook has strong economic incentives to get rid of the Nazis because Facebook has to like have a, a platform that Pepsi is willing to advertise on. The same is not true of Parler, right, because Parler is a much smaller company with a much more niche audience, they don't have the same kind of economic incentives. And so I think that Paula's incentives are less well aligned with the rest of us, with the public interest, than Facebook's are in that case. And so I, I do get a little concerned about whether federation... I mean, again, you know, the devil is in the details, right? Like, I think a lot of the people who advocate the sort of like Mastodani kind of federated systems think that we can replicate a kind of incentive to follow the public interest through the idea, you know, if like somebody makes a Nazi server, then everybody else will just defederate for with them. I mean, like, if that's true, that's awesome. Like, I'd like to see, I'd like to see that play out in real life and see some evidence develop before I think it is true. But if it is, that would be great. There's a little more kind of like anarchy curious aspect of that and anarchy and i mean yeah in the chaos kind of general yeah, like a robert knows that kind of way yeah absolutely yeah i want to ask you about just a couple of specific things you know chapter four focuses on in part on what you call the problem of donald trump and you know you get into questions around january 6th around the deplatforming of trump you say the great deplatforming was absolutely necessary so I suppose I'll put to you, you know, having done this book and thought about these things, what about the great replatforming that we've seen over the last few weeks? You know, here we are in this moment yeah. where this would-be despot is uh, once again potentially putting people in harm's way. How does that square with your thinking? I don't love it. I mean, it's not as easy a question, right? So like the thing about the great deplatforming is there was an active like literal attack on the capital happening, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, it doesn't take, despite the fact that, I mean, it, it honestly like really blows my mind how much people seem to want to like 
whitewashed January 6th. I mean, it wasn't that long ago at this point. It was only two and a half years ago, but here we are. But I mean, the simple fact of the matter is that there was like a genuine attempt to threaten the peaceful transfer of power in like the world's like richest and most powerful democracy. I mean, that's like nuts. We should be talking about that in the same breath that we talk about like the fall of reconstruction. Oh, wait, we don't talk about that either. It was the easiest possible case for like platforms intervening on a sort of live political event to be like, hey, guy, who's like giving these sort of mealy mouth speeches that sort of half say go home, but also say, oh, you're so wonderful. I appreciate your bravery with the stolen election, right? Like, like, no, I mean, that needed to stop. The replatforming, right? So I, I have a lot of thoughts about that. One of them is, and then, you know, this is my, uh, like, I'm going to hijack this, like, take it in chapter five a little bit, is I do think it's really good that it happened pursuant to, at least on Facebook, the sort of well-organized like system of rules that the oversight board helped create. I think that the Trump thing really vindicates the oversight board. And, you know, I can go on about this for a while, but, you know, the idea that the oversight board could both like hold on to the sort of emergency action, but at the same time, like help build a system of rules to actually guide the decision making going forward. Well, how do we wrestle with this problem of Donald Trump? Right? Like that's the sort of ideal of what a court like entity could do. And I'm just like really happy that it went that way. I mean, in a way that sort of commits me to at least like half endorsing the re- the replatforming, even though I think that, you know, Donald Trump is a menace. And like, frankly, every news story that comes out that says, here's some other group of Republican voters who's still deluded into thinking that he won the 2020 election just like makes me even more scared. And so, yeah, I'd say that, like, the sort of problem, the ongoing problem of Donald Trump is a really hard one. I mean, the good thing for me is that in some sense, like, a large part of the premise of the book, right, the global democracy includes America. And so to some extent, the question of the the Donald Trump issue on the platforms is not one that I should be single-handedly solving. It's also not one that Mark and Elon and all the rest should be single-handedly solving. Well, speaking of Elon Musk, uh, you know, and his interest, (laughs) I suppose I'll ask you about one other thing, which, you know, didn't have an opportunity to make it into the book, given the timing of it. But I guess two related things, you know, you've got on the one hand, disclosures from Twitter about conversations that were going on between the platform and the federal government. You've got, on the other hand, Missouri versus Biden and these state attorney generals from Louisiana and Missouri who have, you know, essentially sued the federal government, the Biden administration for their interactions with the social media platforms. I don't know. What do you make of of these events? Is there something that you wish you could go back and write something into the book that would address this phenomenon? Again, we're talking about one of the more difficult problems, right? Like, you know, the U.S. has a robust free speech regime, 
And like there is a point at which, you know, like people who study this call it jawboning, right? Like there's this point where like we've got a regulated industry and the government like doesn't have the authority to make the regulated industry do something, you know, for example, because the government like would violate the First Amendment if it did so. But, you know, the government has like lots of other regulatory leverage over that industry and lots of just like interpersonal ties between, you know, there are people moving back and forth, there are lobbyists all the time, right? And so the government just sends people to be like, hey, buddy, no, we'd really like you to do this. We can't make you do this, but we'd really like you to do this. And I think that's generally recognized as bad, right? I mean, I have some sympathy for the objections to this jawboning from the right. But again, that sympathy is limited, right? Because at the same time, like the government is allowed to solicit voluntary compliance with things, right? The government is allowed to say, like, hey, we think that this is a really bad idea and it's dangerous and we can't regulate it, but we damn sure can explain why we think it's a really bad idea and dangerous and then let you, private industry, make your own damn decisions. But again, I'm going to fall back to democracy for this, because I think to the extent jawboning is a problem, jawboning is a problem only because the people who like run companies have incentives to go along with the government that are not the same as the incentives they have to do the right thing. Right, they always have to worry, you know, is the FCC going to mess with Section 230, which they probably don't have the authority to do, but let's pretend they do, right, is something, you know, they always have to worry about that. And so again, you know, if we involved more ordinary people in these kinds of decisions, people who don't have to answer to the FCC and the SEC and all the rest, but who can be persuaded with the government saying, hey, actually, it's like really bad that you've got all of this like weird COVID misinformation floating around, then maybe that's a way forward. I'm less confident because, of course, particularly in the US, you know, our, our underlying politics among ordinary people are also super polarized. And so I have to admit that as I say this, feels insufficient to me because it feels like it would just move the problem down another level. But it's something to to work with, at least. Like I think ultimately, we're really dealing with a conflict that's inherent to the relationship between the government and big business, right? Like, you know, there are lots of things that the government would want big business to do, often for really good reasons that it can't and shouldn't be able to make the businesses do. We could talk about so many other things. This book gets into so many topics that are core to the interests of tech policy press. But I guess I'll just ask you about that last chapter. You know, I understand we're, as we're recording this, it's August 22nd, August 25th, I believe the Digital Services Act comes into effect in the EU. A new sheriff is officially on the block with regard to platform regulation. What do you think liberal democratic governments can do now? What should they be doing? And should we put a lot of hope in the DSA to potentially corral some of the problems we've discussed? 
you know, what the EU does is oftentimes not perfect, right? Like I think, for example, you know, a lot of the privacy stuff that they've done, I mean, while it's been nice, it's either been like overbroad or ineffective. So, you know, the like at the same time, like the EU has been working really hard on the Digital Services Act, right? I mean, there's just so much consultation. You know, one of my other hats that I wear is that I'm involved in the Integrity Institute, which is a nonprofit for like people who've worked in these kinds of spaces. And, you know, the Institute has been offering like a lot of expertise to the EU. Lots of people, lots of organizations have been like in the loop on things like the Digital Services Act. And, you know, I think the EU, as I said, it's a really credible regulator. It has a lot of power. This is really thoughtful stuff, you know, is it perfect? No. Like, do any of these things perfect? No. But on the whole, I think I'm probably, I'm going to say I'm like, I'm I'm skeptical and bullish at the same time (laughs) of the Digital Services Act, right? Like, bullish because they did, you know, put a lot of thought into this and they do have credible regulatory authority. Skeptical because, I I don't know, like fundamentally, it still seems to me that all of these kinds of, okay, like here are some like concrete things that the companies have to do, you know, here's this transparency piece, right? Like here's this piece about like, how long you have to do X and do Y and so forth. So I, like all of this stuff is addressing the symptoms rather than the problem, right? And so, you know, to the last and the conclusion of this book, I talk a bit about what states can do to actually directly address the problem rather than do whack-a-mole with the symptoms, right? So when I think of regulation that entities like the EU really should be exploring, I think, you know, go back to those content moderators in the Philippines, right? Like, I think that workplace regulation to empower the groups of workers that are likely to be much better at having an input in these kinds of governance decisions than the companies are, like requiring them to treat content moderators and other kind of contractors as real employees has more potential. Right, I think like subjecting companies to human rights law directly, and hence like giving even stronger incentives on company leaders to do more work because we're like focusing on the outcomes rather than sort of things like transparency measures is likely to be more effective. You know, I'm happy that the kind of work that goes into the Digital Services Act is happening. But I support more root and branch reform efforts. Well, unfortunately, we will have to leave it there. I wish we had another hour uh, to go on about this, but I will commend Tech Policy Press readers to this book, The Networked Leviathan for Democratic Platforms. Uh, in the affirmative, uh, Paul Gowder, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you for having me. This has been great. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. 
Press.